This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. provide access to cultural information in the 21st century. The image that you've been looking at for a little while um, is one of my favorites from my collection. It's William Henry Holmes's topographical drawing. He actually drew this sitting at the edge of the Grand Canyon in, in the early 1880s with pencil. And uh, it, it, it's just extraordinary. Uh, it and the 27 other images that are going to follow it next five minutes are examples from five very different cultural collections that I sponsor. Images from my own map collection, primarily of the Americas. Images from 39 art museums, the Amico collection. The National Palace Chinese art images from Taipei, Taiwan, and uh, Farber Gravestones, an unusual collection of 3,500 pictures, but here's one detail, of early New England gravestones. Finally, Japanese historical maps from the UC East Asian Library of Berkeley. They're very different materials, yet when they're combined, as you're seeing here, I think exciting associations result and meanings are expanded. I think this is a look into the future, being able to travel instantly over the web to all kinds of cultural content and being able to search it, display it, combine it in unusual ways. Cultural information like these pieces has typically been collected in analog form, photographs, books, paintings, maps, etc., for hundreds of years, in physical libraries, museums, archives, and private collections. Collections were physically separate from each other in distant cities and countries, as well as being separated by subject matter and media, paintings in museums, books in libraries, manuscripts in archives, and so on. The advent of the internet and digital technologies is opening up this content and making it available to the public for the first time. Yes, it's in facsimile, but with such high resolution digital imagery and such powerful display and analytical software tools that working with the images, as I hope you'll see from my talk, can in some ways be more powerful than working with the original objects. It's almost like revealing the source code of cultural systems by getting access to the content, we'll be able to build new interpretations on top of that content and easily share those interpretations with others. Principles found in the open content and open source movements can affect this process. Open content is sort of a new term. It means, though, much more than providing free access to information at some level of resolution or density. It also involves ideas such as fair use of intellectual property, interoperability, distributed systems, content aggregation across multiple libraries, cross-collection searching, and imaginative structures for online library architecture that will help users share, learn from, and interpret cultural content in ways never before imagined. The growth of online library content will be accelerated, I 
think, by enabling participants, both users and contributors, to build collections of images and text collaboratively, much the way that open source itself accelerates the evolution of software. Open content is evolving as a concept. It can range from totally free content to access only to the metadata description of the content, perhaps a small thumbnail if it's an image. I think we should embrace all these uses over the next few years as things evolve. The interests of publishers, scholars, the general public, and librarians will affect how things shake out over this period. And now to make it even more interesting, Google, our favorite search engine, is embarking on adding huge amounts of pre-1923 content to the web through collaborations with libraries. They'll be scanning hundreds of thousands of books and so on. This will be an interesting counterweight to the fee-based subscription services offered by web publishers. We certainly are in an interesting time. I think a period of major changes in the way that cultural information is disseminated in our society. This afternoon, I'm going to show you examples of how online libraries can provide this open content, focusing primarily on image databases. I think that, however, I think the text, audio, and video share similar issues in regard to online libraries. And I'll use my own experience in building an online map library as well as other image databases that I sponsor or help to distribute. All of these databases are free access at some level of resolution, with a small number being subscription at the highest level of resolution. For me, the idea of sharing this kind of information began about 10 years ago when I started to investigate ways to provide public access to my private historical map collection of over 150,000 maps of, America's, of the Americas in the world that I, I collected for about 20 years. I looked into donating the collection to one of the research libraries that I was involved with. I, I serve on several library boards, uh, including Stanford's advisory board, but soon discovered that such a donation wouldn't provide real access at all to the public, rather it would it would provide good preservation, but it would lock the collection most likely up from broad access. So I looked for another solution. Luckily for me, really just serendipitous timing, the internet came along. It was 1995. And also there were big advances in high resolution digital image scan, image compression technology, GIS, geographic information systems, and sophisticated image database programs it became clear to me that I might be able to actually create public access to all my maps by making a free online library on the internet with the new technology and tools. With, and to my surprise, I discovered with these tools we could actually do more with the historical maps than we were able to do with the originals. Zoom into the finest details, overlay maps on each other, fly through the maps using gaming technology and more. So using these technologies I created a public online library. I launched DavidRumsey.com in early 2000 with just over 2,000 maps. Julie Sweetkind Singer, who is here today, now head of Stanford's Earth Science Library, was my collaborator and map librarian at the time, and a huge help in getting the project going. Since then, we've built the online collection to over 11,000 maps, added many new tools. We serve over 7,000 visitors to the site every day, over 2 million per year. We have about 2.75 terabytes of data in the online library. Our average image size is very large, 250 megabytes, with some images 
that I'll show you today going up to two gigabytes. We serve the broadest possible range of users, from the scholar to the homeschooler. We got a Webby Award in 2002 for technical achievement. What you're seeing here with these panoramas is the physical library in San Francisco. Transforming all this analog information to digital takes time. We began scanning in 1997. When we went online in 2000, we quickly learned some things about the principles underlying the functioning, the effective functioning of online digital libraries. I'd like to share with you now some of the some of them, the key eight or nine ideas that we developed. The first idea, and this is the homepage of the online library, is that there's never going to be any one software that will actually do the job for, for the online library. In fact, you're going to have to develop multiple kinds of software to do different things. So we actually have a, an Insight browser, an Insight Java client, a GIS browser, uh, uses geographic information systems, and then finally this collection ticker, which is an eccentric piece of software. The Insight browser, I'll show you first, it allows you to get immediately into the collection without any kind of download. It's, it's written in JavaScript. You can browse the collection by clicking on these carrots here, 20 images at a time. If, if you love maps, you could go through the whole collection this way. You can also search the collection. When you find an image, you highlight it once, and you get the full metadata catalog record over here on the left. You can click on File Data, and you'll get the size. This is Henry Popple's map of the British Empire, 1733. It's one of our larger images. It's almost two gigabytes. It's an eight foot by eight foot map, 24,000 pixels by 24,500 pixels. You can then click again on the image and open it in a second window with tools over here, zoom in, zoom out. You can open a second window side by side or any number of windows to compare. In this case, this is the index sheet for the Popple map. We can compare it to the large map. We can then zoom into the large map through multiple levels of resolution going towards New York City. Each level of resolution reveals a whole different aspect to the map. We, we scan at least 300 pixels per inch to achieve this kind of detail, and often up to 600 pixels per inch, depending on what is the smallest item in the map that, that we want to uh, show. The Java client here is a little bit more of a commitment. It involves a download of about 20 megabytes, not a big deal these days, uh, but it, it offers substantially more features. Here, it looks very much like the browser, the Insight browser, but it has 50 images per page. One of its key differences is you can highlight multiple images, in this case five images, and bring them all into one space and move them around and compare them and enlarge them and so on. This is a wonderful map of New York City, uh, 1811, the 33 miles around the city by Matthew Eddy. We can click and get the, uh, the data window. We can expand the data window. We can drag zoom, as in Photoshop, and go right into an area, have a larger thumbnail that shows us where we are. We have a panning tool here that lets us pan. 
we can measure distances, sort of a proto-GIS. We can measure from this point to that point. Insight is not certainly a full-blown GIS, but it has some aspects of it. Um, we can measure area here. We can also uh, create relative size. All digital objects tend to look the same size, but they're not, of course. So if we use the relative size button, now we can see how these five objects relate to each other in relative size. This chart of New York Bay, of course, is the largest. We can also uh, have annotation and linking tools. So if we want to, to, to make notes about a particular thing on the map, we can. We can save those annotations separately, or we can create uh, links to other websites, in this case, to a very modern-looking map of the subway system in New York City today. The other thing the, the, this Java client does, which is very important, is it, it, it has a very elaborate presentation tool. The software that I've been showing you up to this point is really more about discovery and examination, but for teaching, you actually need ways of, you know, creating sequences of images and, 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 and using them in class and so on. So this was developed with the Yale Art History Department and Luna Imaging. Essentially, you set up all of your images on a sort of a, a pseudo light table with your zoom ins and your zoom outs and side by sides and so on. And this is trying to get beyond the convention of two projectors, two slide projectors with you know, fixed imagery. That's the kind of art history that I grew up with. So this is an example of a presentation I did at uh, Berkeley back in February on uh, uh, religious sites in New Spain. And just to show you what I did, I, I wanted to show the cartouche, then I could overlay the map itself. The cartouche is four. We can zoom in. Uh, this is Delil's map of uh, Mexico and Louisiana from the early 1700s. We're going into the area around Santa Fe and Taos. Going to the Popo map in the Java client, we can now do, as we zoom in, we can do these overlay zooms. So we overlay layers on top of each other to get a feel for the different texture uh, in the map. This is showing uh, Richard Cushy's 1731 globe, little pocket globe, which shows California as an island, which it still is, obviously, after the last election. Uh, here, the myth of California as an island is debunked in 1747. It was debunked in several atlases, but this one by Emmanuel Bowen, his map of New Spain. We can, we, again, we zoom in on this little note here, which talks about Father Kino traveling on foot around 1700 and determining that uh, it wasn't, California was in fact attached to the mainland. Finally looking at Humboldt's wonderful atlas of New Spain, it has a glorious two-sheet map of Spain which we can join digitally. We, we can make new objects with digital scanning. And then we can zoom in here to the area around present-day Salt Lake City, look at the travels of Father Escalante as he moved through that country uh, in the 17th century. Finally, this wonderful map of the country between Veracruz and Mexico City. We can zoom in on the 
Pico de Orizaba volcano, show it with the illustration from the same atlas, and then even show a elevation diagram also from the same atlas of this very area. So these are the kinds of things we can do uh, with the presentation tool. The third piece of software that, that we developed, uh, GIS, for me really started um, here. Uh, Julie Sweet, kind singer, and I were presenting at a conference um, in Hong Kong in early 2001, and Meredith Williams, who is here as the GIS specialist, was tutoring us both uh, rapidly in GIS at that time. And what we were learning, of course, was desktop GIS. And since then, uh, what I've worked on is how to bring into a web browser GIS functions so that it will allow free access to historical maps in GIS. When you put a historical map into GIS, as we call it, you have to, you have to essentially rebuild the image. In this case, this is Lewis and Clark's map of their journey uh, across America, in, uh, published in 1814. Here it is before it's geo-rectified. After geo-rectification, you can see it takes on quite a bit different shape. It's now pulled into modern uh, geographic space so that then we can overlay uh, current geospatial data on top of the old map and see changes and very interesting things. Here we're overlaying uh, a road map of the United States. We can also overlay data layers. In this case, these yellow dots represent their campsites as they went on their journey. You can click on each dot and get significant information about the campsite. So to bring it into a web-based GIS, I worked with a group called Telemorphic in Berkeley uh, using uh, base software's ESRI's ArcIMS. And not to get overly technical, but the, the way I work is we, we customized the software to meet the needs that I felt users had in, in working with the imagery. So we built this image viewer up here and the quad viewer it's called. You have here uh, modern vector data. These are all layers and then historical maps over here. So what you do is as we zoom into San Francisco, this is uh, San Francisco, we did thematic sites, San Francisco, New York, Washington, so on. Mostly urban, but one on Lewis and Clark as well. Zoomed in, then we can turn on these historical map layers which have all been geo-rectified. This is San Francisco, 1890. San Francisco, 1869. You can see that everything is now in its correct geographical space. San Francisco, 1859, and then finally, 1915. Then we can click on the quad viewer, and we open all four of these maps in the viewer. And as we zoom in, they're all now the same scale and the same orientation. In, in the physical library, in my map library, these are very different sizes. Some are small, big, and so on. But here in this viewer, we can really start to do interesting comparisons and see this window is 1859. We can see that South of Market is still largely underwater. It's filled in by 1869. In 1890, the docks are filling in. And by 1915, the city's been through a major earthquake and has recovered. And these new buildings are, are the rebuilding city. We can change any of these windows. We can turn on here a uh, 
aerial view, which is also georectified, so we can compare high-rises today with the historical blocks that, that they fall on. Again, zoom in, they all move together, and we can bring in a modern map. The image viewer uh, lets us look at two layers. In this case, this is the 1869 map showing uh, North Beach, what is modern-day North Beach. As we move this slider, we can blend in the modern aerial view, and we can see where they filled in these coves and so on. So we can get a really wonderful visual sense of change. We can also swipe, so you can move this thing across. And then going over to the uh, Presidio, uh, I did this little demonstration for the, the Long Now Foundation, uh, whose board I'm on. This is, this is our office, Long Now offices here. And we start, we'll blend into the modern, the 1869, and we realize that much of where our offices are is, was a sterile. It was all this wetlands. Here, the Presidio is actually quite small, just the main parade ground that we see today. Then we change image to the 1905 US Coast Survey, blend that in, and we can see another 36 years of change, where they've filled in streets here. We still see some of the Estero. Then we, then we blend to the 1926 U.S. Coast Survey. We can see they filled in all the Estero and had the uh, exposition here. And then finally, the modern map shows us Doyle Drive, Chrissy Field, and so on. So this is a way we can, we can look at change visually over time. Uh, as these collections get larger and larger, uh, for people who don't know what they're looking for, it becomes very difficult to sort of find the door to enter in. So we, we developed this collections ticker as an alternative to structured searching. And what it does is essentially, uh, it's like a stock ticker. It just goes in random, and the thumbnails parade across takes about eight hours and you'll see the whole collection. So the thought is you do your email and other useful tasks and when something catches your eye, you can mouse down over it and you get a you know, brief metadata, the title, the date, and the author. And should you want to uh, change direction, you can just swoop your arrow and it'll go in the opposite direction, you can pause it. You find something you want, you click once on it and then it goes over the internet into the Insight database and gets the map and then you can zoom in, get all the levels of resolution and all of the tools. So it provides sort of for serendipity and accident you can also look at it in a, in a structured fashion, uh, alpha, alphabetical order by author. So those encompass some of the tools that we've used. We, we discovered we had so many tools and we we're starting to get visitors from non-English speaking countries. So we created this flash tour in five languages through all of these tools that I've showed you. So it's in English, in Spanish, in French, 
and German and Italian. Another, so that's one of the main principles using a lot of different kinds of data, uh, software to show the data and expanding tools over time. Another thing that a, an online library must do is to continually add new content. So we're, we're very rigorous about this. We add new GIS sites and new uh, uh, images all the time. Here's an example. In June 1 of last year, we added 811 new, 11 new maps. We give a summary of the maps here. You can click on any of these links. In this case, uh, Pictorial St. Louis, uh, uh, a wonderful book of bird's eye views of St. Louis from 1876. It's 110, uh, 110 images like these double page spreads, annotated with descriptions of all the businesses. It's just an amazing wealth of information. However, it's not joined together. And here's the plan when we saw that this is the plan that is in the book for joining this thing. It would be 22 feet wide by eight feet tall. So seeing how we, we like to knit these things together, we joined the, all the images in one massive, almost two gigabyte image um, of what is the largest bird's eye view of a United States city. So now we can see how the whole city spread out, evolved over time, zoom in, and so on. On the GIS sites, uh, we created a, a Washington, D.C. site. Each of these urban sites have about 20 to 30 maps. Um, Here's Long Feng's map of the, his, his, his manuscript drawing. This is from the Library of Congress, 1791, of Washington, overlaid on the modern uh, satellite view. New York City, with over 35. Here's our eddy map that I showed you earlier, now in GIS, in the image viewer. You can slowly blend the modern topographic view. It, it began to be clear to me that what was also possible with this software and where we were going with the Insight software was the ability to combine different kinds of collections, as I showed you in the beginning of my talk, different kinds of images. Uh, so I, I got involved in sponsoring some different kinds of content. Uh, first on the map side, in this case, Japanese historical maps from the Mitsui collection at UC Berkeley. A wonderful collection, about 2,500 maps, the largest collection of Japanese historical maps outside of Japan. Has amazing stuff in it, like this 40-foot hand-painted scroll from the late 1600s showing the Tokaido Road, which is the road that was traveled during the Shogun period from here, from Edo, all the way past Mount Fuji to Kyoto to Osaka, and then all the way to Kyushu here. You can zoom in and see Edo and Mount Fuji. We can combine then my map collection online with this Japanese map collection and look at different cartographic 
conventions. In this case, this is from Emmanuel Bowen's atlas showing his map of Japan, 1747, with his fairly conventional Western cartography that we're used to. Here is a map from a little earlier period, 1694 by Ishikawa, showing Tokyo. And you, you begin to see how Japanese cartography is a mix of pictorial elements and spatial elements. They tend to have these pictograms for major cities, these lozenges for the smaller towns along the road, and so on. We can also combine uh, non-map images, in this case the Amico Library that I mentioned earlier, a wonderful uh, source of images from about 40 American museums. Using the Insight software, we can combine both collections, search. In this case, I had a map of India from 1768. I had zoomed into Delhi, current New Delhi. There was something called the Royal Gardens, and I found an illustration of the Royal Gardens in the Amico database. You can also do the same thing with the Japanese historical maps. Combine them with Amico if we search the word Kyoto, we can find all kinds of art images as well as maps. In this case, we're looking at a, about a 1700 map of Kyoto. Hiroshige's uh, wonderful illustration of the bridge at Sanjo, and then a, a, a screen from the Cleveland Museum showing horse racing at the Kamo Shrine. We can look at that bridge and then zoom in to the very same bridge on the map and see how it was uh, about 100 years earlier. I share my, collection, my map collection with Stanford, uh, thanks to Glenn Worthy, who is here. And uh, that allows people here at Stanford to mix and match my maps with Chicana art and the uh, Kirker Project. Here, we can see that these wonderful letters from the Jesuit priest here, all in this uh, Christian collection, they're cataloged in Mark. The Chicana art is cataloged in VRA. And my maps are cataloged in my own brand, Rumsey, which is a pseudo mark. But the Luna database can search across. It, it maps across the different metadata structures. And we can bring up images all of the collections. In this case, letters from uh, a priest in Santiago, Chile, to Kircher in Rome from 1760, 1671 rather, and then a contemporary map from my collection. Or art images from Chile from the Amico collection. Or we can just do kinds of collages of images from the Chicana Art Collection, and the other two collections. I also share my map collections with Yale University. Here, I discovered that they have a uh, O'Sullivan photo from the Wheeler Survey. That I have the Wheeler Survey map. This is of Pyramid Lake in Nevada. Or we can do very visual comparisons. The Eddy map I showed you earlier compared with Judy Chicago's dinner plate and Smithson's Spiral Jetty. 
doing a collaboration with Octavo Press um, to put some of their Shakespeare quartos and folios in the inside format. This is sort of an example of how you need to be very relaxed about what software can do what things. Octavo is very open to this, which I think is wonderful. They use PDF uh, for most of their stuff, but when it got to these Shakespeare um, quartos, they really wanted a tool that would allow examination of the texts uh, up close to see different fonts and, and, and different printings. So we provided them with, this is the book viewer. It allows you to go through the book page by page. Even has a little magnifying glass. And here then for the, uh, the quartos, you can put them side by side and see all kinds of interesting changes. In this case, uh, the text of, of King Lear. We can then go into the Amico library and search under Lear and we bring up Blake's drawings of King Lear and Ophelia. Oscar Kokushka even did a drawing of King Lear and then various romantic illustrations of Lear in the 19th century. Combine that with text. Lots of interesting uh, possibilities. In addition, I allow other databases to actually get at my data and images, side going entirely past any of my own viewers, where they just want the raw data. In this case, this is uh, the Ikai group. Um, they have now all 9,000 of my images, my map images, in their own GIS browser. It's served out of uh, Sydney, Australia. And it's a whole other way to look at my materials. As you can see, the thumbnails, instead of being shown in the Luna browser as uh, you know, rows, they're now in a map. And they're in rough geographical space. They, they do a kind of a rough uh, georectification of each image. So this is another form of, of sharing information that I, I think it, that any, this third principle of an online library is that its data should be available to other online databases to use and display in their own software and formats. This is certainly the way all this software is moving. Uh, Luna, which I'm involved with, we're moving towards open source, we're moving towards complete uh, APIs, application program interfaces. Um, most of our clients now, which are museums and institutions, just want to have their data on one, in one place and have all different softwares access it. I also share my data with the Geography Network, which is sort of a, uh, a free GIS site maintained by ESRI, or it's mostly free. Some of this is subscription. So if you search in the Geography Network for Tokyo, you'll bring up our Tokyo GIS site using the uh, East Asian Library Maps. And you can view the site in the uh, ARC Explorer, or in our, which is the uh, uh, ESRI, on-site software or in our own software, either one. And finally, uh, the Farber Gravestone collection I mentioned, uh, I developed that with the American Antiquarian Society. I'm on their board and uh, I helped them bring that onto the web. It's a wonderful collection of, of uh, 
13,500 photographs of gravestones. So it's verse, it's history, genealogy, art, all rolled into one. And then uh, finally the uh, National Palace Chinese classical art collection that we're just bringing online now, which uh, is about 5,000 images of treasures uh, from the museum in, in Taipei. We developed at Luna Imaging something called personal collections in response for the need of teachers and others to build their own collections. And I think it, this is, again, a direction that a lot of these online libraries are going to go is to allow for individuals to create collections, to post them, to share them with institutionally created collections, and so on. Just to show you how this works in the Luna software, essentially have a, a template, it's a wizard, you slide images in, it processes them into JPEG 2000 derivatives. You can create simple or complex metadata descriptions and then it opens up. This is my trip to Kyoto, Japan in 2002. Images of temples and so on. Now they're in the Luna format. I have all the tools, comparison, zooming, and so on. And then even more importantly now, I can take these images and I can combine them with Japanese historical maps, for instance. Here's one of my images of a uh, entrance to a shrine. We can go in the historical map and zoom in to a similar view of that same shrine. Or we can then go into the Amico library and pull up another view from the Cleveland Museum screens. So lots of ways to, uh, to bring these images together. I think open content also means that there's got to be lots of ways, lots of ways to open up the content to literally find it, not just on the home page of a collection, but from multiple entry points. And we've learned this over the, over the four or five years we've been doing this. Uh, we have many ways that we make the content available. For instance, um, all of our content is in the California Digital Library, uh, the Melville and uh, uh, Gladys, uh, OPEC's online catalogs, it's also here at Stanford. We do that by putting everything in OCLC and uh, we create new records in MARC. Here's an example of how those records look in the Gladys database. If you search for Mexico 1847, you'll come on this record here, John Disternell's map of Mexico from my collection 1847 with this very long uh, electronic location. But there it is. And expanding the record, you can see we do a lot of original cataloging. Some of this catalog has already been done, but we're, we're, we're doing entire atlases, too. So that's all new cataloging. So we're, we're creating new records as well as electronic links. So all you do is you click on the electronic link. It goes through a redirector page for stability of the URL. We've actually moved the server several times. Uh, since we started this project about three or four years ago, so we're very glad to have this redirector page. And then it opens it up in the software, the Insight software, you can look at the map, all of the things I've showed you before, zooming in, zooming out, and so on. So that's one way people find us then. They're not, they know nothing about us, they're simply searching in those OPACs and they find uh, 
eight or nine thousand of our records uh, covering various things. We also put those same records into Google. We revealed them to the Google Spider uh, by creating HTML pages for all the catalog records and the images. So if you search for panorama from Point Sublime in Google, up will come our page for that image. Uh, you can click on the image and go right in, get all the Luna behaviors. Here's another one of those wonderful topographic drawings uh, that I was showing you by William Henry Holmes. In this one, we can see that he, in fact, drew himself in making the drawing. So of the uh, 7,000 visitors a day that we get to the site, probably 5,000 come through search engines, where they're searching for map of this, or the Grand Canyon, or Boston, or whatever. We also reveal all of the images to Google's uh, ImageBot spider. So you can find them in Google Images as well. We put all of our data into a scholarly uh, uh, search engine called the Open Archives Initiative. And this has uh, several search engines, but my favorite is OAIster from the University of Michigan. Uh, again, you get the full record in Dublin Core with a link um, to the material. Finally, we, we actually started our own portal called Visual Collections. Um, as the number of collections in the Insight format began to build up, and, and many of them uh, willing to go public, including several here at Stanford, uh, we built this thing called Visual Collections. And it has over 300,000 images from more than 30 collections. They're, almost, they're all free at some level of uh, of granularity. Most of them are entirely free. So we have cartography, including maps of Africa from Stanford, as well as the Stanford Geological Survey collection that Julie has done, uh, fine arts, the Amico Library, the MOAC, Herbert Johnson Museum, architecture, photography, other for those that don't fit into anything, and then viewing all of them, um, giving a sense of what you can do with this. Well, first, I'll show you just up front some of the collections. Here's uh, a Stanford collection, wonderful Hoover Institution posters collection, political posters, a lot from Russia, uh, University of South Florida postcard collection, life in, in Florida in the 20s. Herbert F. Johnson Museum at Cornell. This is an example of, a, of a, there are almost 20,000 art images. There was, they restrict the viewing to this size here outside of campus, but it's still, as you can see, this is the maximum size that they let go outside of the campus. In the campus, you get the full size, but it's still a very interesting and usable collection. Stanford Geological Survey, wonderful collection of geological maps that were made here by students at Stanford over the years. Maps of Africa, also from Stanford. Almost 600 very old and rare maps of Africa, a wonderful collection. Here's one of the Ortelius Atlas maps of Africa from that collection. And then the Museum and Online Archive of California. This is a, uh, a, a 
University of California collection from all of its museums and archives, almost 77,000 images. Wonderful stuff. Here's Bierstadt's painting of Yosemite Valley. Uh, we, this, we can see, if we take off from this collection, example of searching across all of them, if we click on File and highlight all of the collections that are in that Visual Collections portal, and then select, we'll then go through and contact all of the servers for those collections and bring all of those images up. And there's 271,134 images. So we've now built a virtual collection from all these 30 collections. And to me, this, this is the future. This is the way people are going to build really large collections, this aggregation of content through various means of software. I mean, Google does this to some extent now, but it's, it's still really a discovery tool more than a presentation tool. Here, we can do both. We can scroll through, look at the different images, search, say, keyword horse. We bring up 1,427 examples of horse from all different kinds of collections. Scroll through them and then look at them here uh, in the image workspace. So these are some of the kinds of things we can do uh, combining collections. It's very important, another principle running this kind of online libraries, you've got to be aware of who's coming and what they're doing. And, uh, it's very hard because it's, it's a virtual space, but we watch very carefully our visitor data. We use uh, web tracking software, just conventional stuff, in this case web trends. So this is a typical day in our library. We had 7,336 visitors on the 17th of February. This shows us how they came during the different times of day. We can look at the countries that they came from. Of course, it's mostly the United States, but it's also about 97 other, 96 other countries. You can see that they came from 1,386 different cities, primarily, again, the US, and always Chantilly, Virginia at the top. That's the home of AOL. Um, we can look at the refers. These are the search engines that refer to us. Google's always on top. Other search engines, other sites. We can look at the pages that they looked at. We can look at the paths that they made through the site. Looking more particularly at the search engines, we can get a sense of even the terms that were used. So that day, Islands of Japan was the top search term, then historical maps, old maps, maps of the West Indies, and so on. This tells us a lot of information as we build the online collection, you know, out of the physical collection, because it, it's a constant searching in the physical collection to determine where we go next. So, Looking at what people are interested in helps us in making choices. These are different terms for different search engines. The other thing, uh, the, the library's software itself, I think, should should uh, provide services, if possible, of different kinds. And we, uh, you know, we give away all these images under a uh, uh, a software license from. Um, 
which I'll show you in a little while. But uh, we also had requests people just wanted to buy reproductions because they didn't have the capability of making their own. So we, we teamed up with a group called Art Select, and they actually provide reproductions to uh, about 150 of our maps. You can order them from the site and so on. We also allow full downloading, though, of the images in either the Mr. Sid format, which is highly compressed, or in a JPEG format at any level of resolution. We use a Creative Commons license, excellent work that's being done here at Stanford. The only thing, we're currently not allowing commercial. Uh, we really have allowed almost, we've always allowed commercial work, but we like to see what they're proposing, um, and so we ask that they contact us. The other, uh, the other thing that uh, uh, the library should do is be able to sort of repurpose its data. So two books have come out of this library that I've collaborated on. First one was called Mapping the West by my friend Paul Cohen. This is a more recent book, Cartographica Extraordinaire, that I <coughs> authored with Edie Punt, who is chief cartographer at ESRI Press, the publisher of the book. We use the software tremendously in creating this book. We, we could not have created the book without the software and the digital imaging. So the cover, for instance, comes from the image viewer, blending uh, maps of Boston, an 1842 map with a uh, aerial view. And each chapter we created uh, groups in the Insight, they're like favorites, with all of the images. Edie was in Los Angeles, I was in San Francisco. And we look at the images together and determine the structure of each chapter. And we would build pages even using the software. Here's some of the, uh, just a few things from the book. Show the different ways that topographic representation evolved over time. Showing mountains on their sides. Showing mountains with hessuring and this sort of pictorial then much more elaborate hessuring during the Civil War to show depth and shading. And then finally, hypsometric tints from 1922, the Times Atlas, and then modern satellite imagery uh, using uh, uh, three-dimensional techniques. We also show in the book the influence of railroad lines on something as interesting as time zones. Here, this is from an atlas, from Johnson's atlas. This showed you in 1860, these were all the different local times that existed in the United States. They did not have standard time zones. So when it was noon in Washington, it was 12.22 in Concord, New Hampshire, which would be the same time zone today. It was 11.54 in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was 12, uh, sorry, 12, uh, 24 in Boston. It was 11.31 in Tallahassee. It was 12.08 in Trenton, New Jersey. And it was 11.44 in Columbia, South Carolina. The railroad required all of these towns to get on the same time zone so they could have efficient schedules. Another map in the book that is sort of a, uh, a sort of an icon of 
couple of hundred years of cartography. It's this, what we call this Lewis and Clark mosaic. It takes that same map I showed you, the Lewis and Clark map from 1814 that's been georectified. In GIS, we buffer it, meaning we, we show 30 miles roughly on each side of their route, and then it blends into the 1870s uh, General Land Office map, which was the first accurate survey done in the West. That in turn blends into this 1970 uh, U.S. National Atlas map, and then the whole thing is ringed by present, modern present-day satellite imagery. So you can see the different, the different ways that cartography has evolved over 200 years. In the back of the book, we tie all of the images into the database. So you can choose any of the images in the book, and you have an identif a unique identifier. You can go online, look at that image, zoom into it. If it's in an atlas, you can see it in the context of all the other atlas maps. The last thing I did was I've worked quite a bit with the San Francisco Airport Museum. This is an exhibit that they had up last year, which they'll be in the Delta Terminal, and they're putting it up again in January in the International Terminal called Mapping America. We, again, we built the entire exhibit from the online library. The curator used the uh, relative size tool that I showed you earlier. In this case, chose these images. Those are the actual sizes. Then he knew how he could position them in the windows and so on. We also used a lot of the digital imagery from the site uh, in the exhibit. Finally, uh, the library should maintain, I think, very high standards of image quality and faithfulness to the object. Uh, as I said, we scan very high resolution. We also try to show context. In this case, this is a pocket map of Wisconsin from 1838. We show it folded into its covers, the label on its covers. You can zoom in and read a little advertisement. You can even get down to the level of seeing the repairs that my conservatory did with Japan paper on, on the pocket map itself. I showed you the Henry Popple map with multiple levels of, of resolution. We're very concerned with preservation. Um, we're collaborating with Stanford uh, uh, in a project that, that Julie Sweetkind Singer is heading up here to we'll be giving all of our, our map data and, and catalog records and software uh, to be preserved here under a grant from the Library of Congress on uh, preserving uh, digital archives. So we're very excited about that uh, because this material can be ephemeral. You know, when my website is down, the library dissolves. It's gone. So we're, fortunately that doesn't happen very often, but we are looking to the long term and uh, how to preserve this material. We also try to show context so going back to images of the library, we offer these uh, high resolution, fairly high resolution, QuickTime VRs. You can actually look at the library, see where the material is. Obviously not all of the material, but you get a real sense of the setting. Um, you pan over certain objects and you can get data. There are hot links. We're sort of maniacal about these hot links. There are hot links on a lot of this uh, material. So, for instance, if you see something like this map here, Narragansett Bay, you can click once on it, 
and then again it goes into the Luna database and finds the image uh, and you can explore that object. In this case we'll zoom into Newport So we try to show uh, context as well. Finally, uh, the last thing is what we try to do is to, to take chances and do unusual things with this material. For us, um, this revolved around something that Meredith Williams uh, of Stanford here and I worked on now, whatever, four years ago, three-dimensional GIS. Here's a uh, uh, 1926 chart of San Francisco Bay with all of the depths shown uh, in printed numbers on the chart. Here's a bathymetric model that Meredith made of all of the depths of the bay. We rectified that historical map and then combined it with the bathymetric model. Now we can actually see the bay's depths within the historical map. We got very excited about this possibility and worked uh, to, to be able to take this again and bring it into a web-based uh, facility. So here's an example of uh, the Wheeler survey, the, the first really accurate survey of Yosemite Valley from 1883. This is their printed map before it's georectified. As we zoom in, we can see they showed the cliffs, Yosemite Falls, and so on, using hesuring, very effective, but still fairly flat. So what we did is we georectified the map, and then we got a digital elevation model here of the valley, and then in this little animation you can see we stretched the map so that it follows the digital elevation model. Then we built a, uh, a web-based version that uses gaming technology. And here's a little, this is a little preview in Flash of how you can move around this map. We've done about a half dozen of these maps. Lake Tahoe, San Francisco, uh, Lewis and Clark, this one of Yosemite, Los Angeles, and so on. You click on this full screen viewer and it uses a virtuals uh, free plug-in, and now um, we've got our image of Yosemite Valley, and this is, this is entirely web-based, and we can look at it in three dimensions now, and rotate it around, see the underside, and we can, we can zoom in and see the valley now in three dimensions. We can even blend in the modern topographical map so that we can see changes over time. And then we have, another, we have a couple of other viewers. We have the hover tool, which I've never mastered. I'm becoming a gamer, but slowly. And then we have this fly-through, which you use your mouse. This allows you to uh, basically go down into the valley and then move through it.
at different speeds, and examination, and so on. So this is, you know, I like the paper, actually. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, to me this is interesting stuff. It's, it's sort of prototypical, it's early, but it shows you some of the things that I think will be possible using these, these different kinds of tools. So, just to uh, sort of wrap up, I, you know, I realize that somebody like myself um, is in a somewhat ideal world. I, I do all of this work pretty much philanthropically. Um, these are the examples I've shown you are my own solutions. Undoubtedly, there'll be other approaches and methods in the future as online libraries evolve. But my role in the library world really is just to, I can move quickly. Uh, we're a very small group. Phil Hain, formerly from the uh, map, library, map librarian at UC Berkeley and, he, uh, and, and Bancroft and also worked here for a while, um, is our librarian now after Julie. And um, a couple of other of us, other folks work. So we're a small team, we can experiment. Uh, but we try to show where these directions are going. Um, and so I think over time you're going to see a lot of these kinds of things incorporated into the larger uh, library and museum world. I want to close with a look at two early maps of the northwest coast of America. Uh, one by an English explorer here on the left, George Vancouver, uh, published in 1798, and the other on the right by Spanish explorer Galeano, published in Madrid in 1802. Vancouver and Galeano explored the uh, Pacific Northwest in, together in 1792. They were competing. They competed in various places, particularly around Vancouver, to claim land for England or Spain. As you can see, as we zoom into the maps in the area around the mouth of the Columbia River, they both gave place names to important features. But it's Vancouver's maps and his names that have come down to us, largely because the English published these Vancouver maps widely in many editions over the ensuing years, while the Spanish, who were historically secretive about their maps, published Galeano's maps only in very limited editions in the late 90s and the copy here, 1802. They kept his charts in the vaults, mostly. The Spanish had a more proprietary view and they lost out in this part of the world. This lesson applies equally I think, to sharing information in the world of content and software on the internet. Open content, content that gets out and establishes itself in the world, will create richer online libraries in the long run because it unleashes the power of creativity and community in ways that will serve all of us. Thanks very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.